Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you so much for joining us today as we continue our investigation into the life and death of Marilyn Monroe, our Mirrorball episodes for the month of June. Before we begin, I want to give enormous thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, Barbara G. You are amazing. Thank you for joining our Done and Done community. All our patrons, I appreciate you so much, and I appreciate you, everybody, coming back to listen today. In our last episode, we left Norma Jean, now Marilyn, in the beginning of 1951 and just on the precipice of stardom. In this episode, where we cover her life from 1951 to 1953, Marilyn's going to be making some new friends in Hollywood, like Peter Lawford, who will become very important in our coming episodes. During these two years as well, Marilyn has an incredible rise to success. The world for her is becoming a bit more glamorous, a bit shinier. There are a lot of films, many films, much acclaim, a few men too. One who is contending to be husband material. The years 1951 to 1953 were pretty good for Marilyn Monroe. Standing on her tallest tiptoes and shining just for us, let's investigate. begin this episode within the month of January 1951, as Marilyn is reporting to work on the last film that the recently deceased Johnny Hyde had arranged for her. This film is As Young As You Feel for 20th Century Fox. It is a small role for Marilyn, but again, she's not quite right after her possible attempted suicide over the grief from the death of Johnny, her lover and benefactor. Marilyn feels like she's messing up every scene. And one day at the studio, just strolling on by, are Alia Kazan and Arthur Miller. Kazan and Miller are the two most powerful men in American theater and film. And they're there at the studio visiting their friend, John Houston. And both Elias Kazan and Arthur Miller comfort Marilyn. One of these men will have a dalliance with Marilyn now. That would be Elia Kazan. Arthur Miller's romance with Marilyn Monroe will have to wait just a few more episodes. Although Arthur Miller, Marilyn's future husband, and she will dance the night away during this time in 1951, Arthur Miller is married, and he will say about Marilyn that she terrified him completely. He is very attracted to her childlike innocence, and so, in yet another example of men who will never completely understand the complexity of Marilyn Monroe, Arthur Miller will promptly get the heck out of town, saying he is feeling a sense of danger in his life. This does leave Marilyn in the arms of his friend, Elia Kazan, and there is a brief dalliance here between those two. Potentially in February, with Marilyn maybe pregnant, and once this is revealed to Kazan, he bails. Again, that's speculation. But perhaps Marilyn does suffer a miscarriage or completes an abortion at this time. 
1951 is a big year for Marilyn. She's getting some parts that do get her noticed. She has three pretty successful comedies just in this year, As Young As You Feel, Love Nest, and Let's Make It Legal. At this point, Marilyn's still in the background, but she's stealing scenes. She's getting some national press for her roles. She is noticed for not only her beauty, but her comedic timing as well. Hollywood is not the only one noticing. So are fans. Marilyn is getting many thousands of fan letters a week. 1951 also is the year in which Marilyn is declared Miss Cheesecake by the Stars and Stripes. This is the Army newspaper. Marilyn is a favorite of soldiers in the Korean War. There's a pretty big introduction that happens in 1951 that is going to factor in many, many ways throughout our remaining episodes. This is Marilyn Monroe meeting Peter Lawford. They will meet in his agent's office in 1951, and Peter Lawford will both date her and Marilyn's best friend, Jean Carmen. No big deal here. Marilyn is dating Yul Brenner and Nicholas Ray during this time period. There's dating all around. Initially, Peter Lawford was attracted to Marilyn. She's wholesome. She's down to earth. That's his type. But the more that Peter gets to know her and like her, he becomes less interested in her as a girlfriend, and they really do just become friends. Oh, Peter Lawford. Born September 7th, 1923. He's two or so years older than Marilyn. And at this point, it's time to give a little bit of background into Peter Lawford as he is going to focus heavily within our coming story and Dominic Dunn is intertwined in all of these connections. Dominic is going to be coming into this thread, but again, a little bit of background on Peter Lawford. I feel to understand Marilyn's story, or at least an attempt at understanding Peter Lawford and how he is created, how he lands in Hollywood, and how he runs with the people he's going to run with becomes pretty integral. Peter Lawford was the only child of an army general and a knight of the realm. His name is Sidney Lawford. His mother is Mae Somerville Bunny, which is all well and good, but there is a slight complication in this, as both Peter's mother and father are currently married to other people when Peter's born. Mae Somerville is married to one of Peter's father's officers, Peter's birth will result in a double divorce for both couples. Once that divorce is complete, Sidney and May will marry in September 1924, a year after Peter's birth. His family is connected into the English aristocracy, and this love affair with Sidney and May, the double divorce, and the bonus kid causes a pretty big scandal, as you can imagine, and the Lawfords will soon pack up and move out of England. There's that much scandal attached to this particular affair. Which, hey, leaves Peter Lawford really in a pretty interesting place. He spends his childhood in all kinds of different locations. Peter grows up traveling the world. He has no formal schooling, but I guess you could say the world was his school. Peter will have governesses and tutors, but his education is carefully selected as well as multilingual. 
Peter's growing up seeing all kinds of folks in France, in Africa. The family has passports and they are not afraid to use them. Peter will have his first acting role at the age of seven in an English film, and he's a bit interested in that, but at 14, tragedy strikes. Peter has an accident which will impair the use of his right arm. His right arm will actually go through a glass door, which will land Peter with a great amount of nerve damage in that arm. This will restrict Peter from joining the armed services, which of course his parents have counted on. They naturally want him to follow in his father's footsteps. Peter, because of medical disqualification, decides instead that he is going to be an actor. This is really going to upset Peter's aunt, who is very, very rich. Rich aunt changes all the details of her will, and Peter will now not inherit a thing from her. Peter's going to have to be on his own. Now, the Lawford family, all through Peter's life, has been living all over the world. And in Peter's teenage years, they're going to take a little bit of a detour. And they are going to stay with some up-and-coming families in Palm Beach, Florida, for a little while. We are really going to investigate Palm Beach, Florida, and all of Dominic Dunn's connections there. But at this point in our story, I want you to know that the Lawfords are staying with some new money rich people. And the friends they're staying with, new money, can now brag about the real, live, blue-blooded, aristocratic British people in their home. But by 1939, the Lawfords are out, and they have moved across the bridge from Palm Beach into West Palm Beach. Peter, at this point, is about the age of 16. He should be in school. But Sydney and May Lawford know that war is breaking out, and oh no, all of our cash is in England. They're broke. So from the tiny place that the Lawfords will have in West Palm Beach, Peter, instead of going to school every day, will instead get a job. That job is parking cars. Peter does get noticed in a few ways. Now, the thing you need to know about Peter Lawford is he is handsome as anything. He's tall, he has a real groovy accent, and the job that he is working is keeping his family financially going for a while. There is one hot summer day where Peter is taking a car from car parking, and he's hanging out with some other guys who work at the lot. Those fellows are his black friends, and Peter and his friends are just sitting under the trees and eating sandwiches and playing cards, taking a break, like every other pack of teenage boys taking a break from working at the parking lot. But there's one customer who's really, really mad, angry, hopping mad, a pure temper tantrum. This man is yelling, why is this boy hanging out with blacks? And the customer, who is so very wrong in this situation, goes to the boss of the parking lot with a lot of complaints. And he wants this young white kid fired for having the nerve to sit down under a tree and have lunch with his friends. Peter Lawford will not get fired, but I want to tell you the fun part of this story coming up for you is that jerkhead of a customer is Joseph P. Kennedy, who in about 15 years is going to become Peter Lawford's father-in-law. Hold on to that. So Peter, his family in West Palm Beach, and Mama May, 
thinks that, you know, we can do better than this. Peter, we should really take you out to Hollywood. Because the war has broken out and Hollywood is in need of fine English gentlemen to be movie stars. Which is kind of true. The war is on and there and the lack of actors within Hollywood, because men are overseas fighting, do create a huge opportunity within the film industry. So Mama May is going to borrow some cash and the family will head over to sunny California in which the studio gets one good look at Peter and signs him up. Peter Lawford's film career begins in 1942, with small parts at first, but Peter is steadily working and building his resume, so that even in 1942, he does get his first major part, starring opposite Mickey Rooney in the film A Yank at Eaton. Within a year, Peter Lawford is signed at MGM, all kinds of parts, working his way up to leading man roles. Peter Lawford will win the Modern Screen Reader Poll as the most popular actor of 1946. And, oh my, Hollywood. This is the land of honey when it comes to chicks. And apparently, no one can resist Peter Lawford with his good looks, his accent. Peter Lawford dates everyone. Seriously. (laughs) Hollywood Studios are a lot like high school with dating. There are a few different pools of players and everybody switches around a lot. Two of the leading ladies that we have talked about in our investigation of Done and Done, Lana Turner and Ava Gardner. Peter dates both of them. It turns out that Peter Lawford is dating Ava Gardner in this 1946-1947 time frame. But I want you to know that Frank Sinatra is making it into the Hollywood studio system about the same time as Peter. Frank dates everyone as well, and Frank Sinatra and Peter Lawford are running buddies. They drink together. They're both really reliable with the ladies. They're good friends. The two make things happen. At this point, Peter and Frank Sinatra, terrific friends, but then they won't be. Peter does get a tiny role in a movie of Frank's, and Peter Lawford kind of shows up Frank Sinatra in that role. Peter gets great reviews, Frank does not, and that sort of fizzles out the end of that friendship. I'm going to stop us here. I know that was a tremendous amount about Peter Lawford and getting him just to 1951 and meeting Marilyn Monroe, but whoa, did you hear that? All that's intertwined within those paragraphs. Frank Sinatra, Ava Gardner, Joe Kennedy. Come on. Peter is so key in many, many ways into the story that we are telling about Marilyn. And Dominic Dunn will not write about Marilyn specifically. He will recall her. He will reminisce about her. But he specifically doesn't have a lot to say about her death, which I find curious And we're going to talk about that in coming episodes. But the thing I want you to know and put in place for this one is that Dominic Dunn is into this scene. He's not into it yet. This is 1951. He hasn't even married Lenny. But by the end of the decade, Dominic Dunn is fully entrenched in this scene. Dominic and Lenny are neighbors with Peter Lawford in just a few years. Peter Lawford now being married to his very famous Kennedy wife, Patricia. Dominic Dunn is hanging in that crowd. 
with all of his connections to all of the beach people, all of the Hollywood people, all of the Beverly Hills people, right up to the day of her death in 1962. Now, the Kennedys have been a huge deal to Dominic Dunn growing up. Just like his family, the Dunns, the Kennedys are an Irish Catholic family, certainly on their way up. The Kennedys within Irish Catholic families, I am from one, were idolized in a certain way. They are looked up to. They are revered. I can't imagine Dominic Dunn, at least growing up and throughout the 50s and probably up until Marilyn's death, feels the exact same way. But Dominic's intersection with the Kennedys comes long before he lands in Hollywood. See, Dominic Dunn will attend the wedding of Robert F. Kennedy and Ethel Skakel back in 1950. This is before Dominic meets his future wife, Lenny. But you know, Dominic Dunn, gossiper of all things, is going to talk about going to this wedding. Dominic's date was a classmate of Ethel Skakel's at Sacred Heart College. Robert and Ethel will marry in June of 1950 in Greenwich, Connecticut, I want to go ahead and layer and connect our universe together for you here, weaving in the Dunn-Kennedy connections. Ethel Skakel, bride of Robert F. Kennedy, is the sister of Rushton Skakel. If that name sounds familiar, Rushton's son, Michael Skakel, was convicted for the 1975 murder of Martha Moxley, which is a whole mess of court cases, plural, However, it is after Dominic Dunn writes of that crime in a fictional format within his novel A Season in Purgatory that any kind of motion gets happening on that long-ago, long-forgotten crime in Greenwich, Connecticut. We have talked about the terrible death of Martha Moxley back in episode 12 of Dunn and Dunn, but the thing I want you to connect here is that Dominic Dunn is and always has been looking at the Kennedys. From growing up, having their family as some kind of lauded archetype to get close enough to attend the ever-so-fantastic wedding of Robert and Ethel, and then to writing about the Kennedys, not just in fictional format, but nonfiction too, all throughout the rest of his career. His writings at some point are not necessarily complimentary, and I think that's probably the kindest thing. Something happens here, in my opinion, with Dominic Dunn upon the death of Marilyn Monroe. And again, although Dominic will not talk specifically about his theories on her death, he will always reference his friend and sometimes assistant, Pat Newcomb. Pat Newcomb is Marilyn's publicist. At the time of her death, Pat Newcomb works for Arthur Jacobs. Dominic and Pat are running buddies. They're really good friends. So Dominic would have heard Pat Newcomb's stories. Pat will tell these stories to James Spada, which he recalls along with many other recollections in a book called The Man Who Kept the Secrets. This is a book about Peter Lawford. It's a really excellent resource that I'm going to be pulling from within the next few episodes. I do also want to give a tremendous shout out to Anthony Summers, 
His work, Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe, is a terrific book. There is a a recently released Netflix documentary as well about Marilyn's secret recordings. But I think to understand how Dominic Dunn feels, you must pick up what you can through his connections. These two are good ones. James Spada and Anthony Summers, because they are talking to the people and getting recollections from the people that Dominic Dunn would have been in contact with. This is a terrific time to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to move into 1952 and pick Maryland's thread back up. See you on the flip. And here we begin, 1952, a whole bright new shining year for Maryland, and good things are happening. In February, Marilyn is named the Best Young Box Office Personality by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, but that's probably nothing compared to the romance that she's recently begun with Joe DiMaggio, recently retired from the New York Yankees, baseball star and legend. March of this year will come in with a storm, way more than a whimper. Marilyn Monroe in March sees the tabloids, all the scandal sheets, revealing that she has, wait for it, posed nude in the past. And with Marilyn's star so rapidly on the rise, she and the studios know that this could be really damaging to her image. Marilyn Monroe is going to take control here. She's going to take a stand and really slide into the skid, which sometimes is the smartest way you can go. Marilyn says, hey, I was broke. I needed to eat. Y'all can understand that. I don't have anything to apologize for. I needed to feed myself. Plan works, and the plan is going to launch her into even more stardom than where she started just the year before. Public interest increases in her, and the public sympathy will trend to the side of Marilyn. And now people are showing up to see her films. Any press is good press, I suppose. Marilyn now is receiving top billing for the film-going audience. She gets a Life magazine cover to boot. Marilyn is now the talk of Hollywood. Hedda Hopper, gossip columnist extraordinaire, will call Marilyn Monroe out at this time as the cheesecake queen turned box office smash. Three more films follow. Clash by Night, Don't Bother to Knock, and We're Not Married. But within all these films... Marilyn is placed within, naturally, the contract studio system, and this frustrates Marilyn. She hates that she is slated into roles. She's not able to choose her own parts or script or have control over the other actors or directors. Things are looking very good for Marilyn, but Marilyn's really limited in her pull, in her weight, in her influence right now, and is mad about it, rightfully so. Marilyn begins to suffer from anxiety, which is not a surprise, and insomnia as well. And so to alleviate all of this, Marilyn will become familiar with the use of many types of drugs, including barbiturates, amphetamines, as well as alcohol, which don't do much to solve the feelings that she has, but will ease her pain somehow. Marilyn is mistreated on the set by co-stars and treated as less than. She is bullied by some of her directors. The summer of 1952 will bring a little bit of a scandal. Marilyn will have an affair with Robert Slatzer, which is not unusual. Marilyn dates all kinds of men, a lot of men, and Marilyn says she wants to marry them all. 
Each one of these men that Marilyn dates asserts that, of course, they were the most serious of her lovers. But Marilyn says that she and Robert Slotzer drove to Tijuana and got married. Daryl Zanuck finds out and will summon the (laughs) now not happy couple and says, I want this undone as quickly as possible. And it is back to Tijuana to bribe the officials and burn the evidence. Now, there are numerous biographers that debate this claim. And again, speculation here, it can't be validated, but perhaps it is a possibility. There are a lot of ruffles around the studio then with both of their names. And going forward, Marilyn and Robert Slatzer will remain very close. We're going to hear about him in future episodes as well. One of the other things that happens this summer is that Marilyn Monroe will announce that she's dating Joe DiMaggio. Jolton Joe, again, retired back in 1951 from the New York Yankees, and her announcement of their dating certainly takes the focus off those nude pictures. And Joe DiMaggio, New York Yankees, he's born November 25th, 1914. He is a dozen years older than his future bride and very different than Marilyn. But it does seem that they are both taken with something in each other. See, Joe has seen Marilyn's photo and he wants to meet her. And the day after their first date, Marilyn will tell a friend that she had met the most interesting Italian man. (laughs) And the friend was like, do you mean Joe DiMaggio? Really? And Marilyn says, yeah, we didn't talk about baseball. I don't know. Four months after that first date, he will take Marilyn to meet his family. Joe's getting really serious. There are some complications on the horizon in that Marilyn's intense and immense sexuality is going to cause a conflict between the couple. Marilyn is the sex symbol of the day she's a bombshell, and Joe isn't quite ready for this. Marilyn's going to make three movies in 1953, and in that year, she will make more money for Fox than any other Hollywood studio. $25 million in gross that year. And here's Joe DiMaggio, entranced, retired with some time on his hands, and in love. He's going to try to make a go of this, but it's not going to be easy with three films in 1953 for Marilyn. The first of those, Niagara, is released in January of 1953, and this film gets some folks a little upset. It's a pretty sexually provocative film, but hey, audiences love it, and they love Marilyn. Photoplay, in this same month, January 53, will award Marilyn the honor of Fastest Rising Star. Next up this year in film is a little film called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The novel and Broadway play version of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was written by Anita Luz, and this film will co-star with Marilyn Jane Russell. Marilyn's part was originally slated for Betty Grable, but this is how quickly Marilyn's star is rising. Howard Hawks is the director of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Hawks at this point has divorced Slim Keith a few years before. Although Slim will come back into our Dominic Dunn universe, as we know, being one of Truman Capote's famous swans. During the filming of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Jane Russell will try to get Marilyn Monroe into religion while making this film, but it turns out Marilyn is not a fan of religious meetings. 
In the fall of 1953, her television debut happens. Fantastic on the Jack Benny show. This is in September. We're going to follow that up with one more film this year, How to Marry a Millionaire, where Marilyn this time is starring with Betty Grable and Lauren Bacall. That film is an enormous success. There's a fun little intersection bit just about Halloween of 1953. Marilyn Monroe is in California this particular Halloween at her apartment on Doheny and Cynthia. This really is a rather charming story I learned on TikTok. (laughs) There's an older gentleman that is walking down the block and recalling the day that he and his sibling went trick-or-treating at Marilyn Monroe's apartment in October of 1953. Marilyn will answer the door in a peignoir and give the kids three musketeers bars. Marilyn's whole neighborhood is simply a buzz because apparently later that night, Joe DiMaggio is coming to her home. Closing out 1953, December is going to bring a little bit of a rough spot for Marilyn is that this is the year that Hugh Hefner will release the first issue of his new men's magazine, Playboy. Marilyn Monroe is both featured on the cover and in the centerfold with the centerfold being one of those nude photographs that she did trying, remember, to pay her bills and feed herself from the rougher times in the late 1940s. Playboy will sell 50,000 copies upon that first run, and Marilyn's face and body will launch the magazine with some street cred immediately. Who wouldn't want the most famous star in the world for your first cover girl? This is going to take us right to the precipice of 1954, which is an enormous year for Marilyn Monroe and a lot of our other players we've talked about, including Peter Lawford, Joe Kennedy, Patricia, Joe DiMaggio too. But for today, we leave Marilyn Monroe dating Jolton Joe, having incredible success in her career and the world getting a little bit easier. It's opening up for her. That child who you couldn't drag out of a movie theater, Norma Jean, is manifesting her childhood dreams of stardom. And here we will leave Marilyn on her tallest tiptoes, spinning in her highest heels, shining just for us. We're going to leave Marilyn shining here for now at the end of 1953. But hey, a surprise twist. Stay tuned on Thursday, I promise, for a double done and done episode this week. We will return this Thursday with the year of 1954 and wowza, it's a big year. Thank you, thank you so much for listening and lending your support to Done and Done through your listening, through telling your friends, through your kind reviews and emails, through your support on Patreon. Y'all are simply magnificent and I can't wait to have you back later on this week on Thursday and until then... Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.